This episode is sponsored by Hired.com. Every week on Hired, they run an auction where over a 1,000 tech companies in San Francisco, New York, and L.A. bid on iOS developers, providing them with salary and equity up front. The average iOS developer gets an average of 5 to 15 introductory offers and an average salary offer of $130,000 a year. Users can either accept an offer and go right into interviewing with the company or deny them without any continuing obligations. It's totally free for users, and when you're hired, they also give you a $2,000 signing bonus as a thank you for using them. But if you use the iFreaks link, you'll get a $4,000 bonus instead. Finally, if you're not looking for a job but know someone who is, you can refer them to Hired and get a $1,337 bonus if they accept a job. Go sign up at Hired.com slash iFreaks. Hey, everybody, and welcome to episode 130 of the iFreaks show. This week on our panel, we have Alondo Brewington. Hello from North Carolina. James Zuber. Hello from Minneapolis. I'm Charles Maxwood from DevChat.tv, and this week we have a special guest, and that's Faye Wang. Hi, guys. Do you want to introduce yourself? Yeah, sure. So my name is Faye. I'm a web and iOS developer. I currently work on an iPhone app called Core 15, and I also write educational content for indie mobile developers at secretsaucehq.com. Thanks for having me on the show. Awesome. So we brought you on today to talk about validating an app idea before you build it. Uh, I'm kind of trying to figure out how you would do that. I mean, it seems like most people, they find the apps by browsing through the app store or by looking for something specific like, I don't know, a task list or something. And so without actually putting an app out there for people to find, how do you validate that your app idea is a good idea? Yeah. So in my previous lives, you know, I've worked on a lot of projects where, you know, a big focus of the projects besides the development is uh, finding a business model, finding a market, finding a group of customers that would want to use your app and pay for it. On like a high level, there are a few things that you can do and you could really choose to spend a lot of time on this if you wanted to. Uh, which is really the tricky part. You know, it could take anywhere between a week to a number of months. But, you know, I just have some bigger bullet points that we can go through throughout the show. Uh, you kind of start off with identifying a customer segment that you want to have as the users of the app and finding a, a painful or itchy problem that they may have. And then you go ahead and validating that pain or itch is real by just talking to them face to face doing things like landing page experiments, content experiments via blogs or podcasting. And then next, you kind of want to just figure out how are they currently, you know, relieving this pain or scratching that itch? Uh, do they like or dislike about that solution? And then you can just kind of go and prototype out some solutions and get feedback. And uh, even then, uh, you know, you can use tools like Sketch, Envision App, Marvel, and things like that to be able to like get most of the way there and get feedback without still without writing code. And then uh, as a last step, before you even build, uh, you actually kind of want to just validate what your marketing channels are going to be, right? So you kind of mentioned that a lot of people find apps purely through the app store, but there are actually a number of other ways, you know, things like purely your landing page, right? Or through a Google search or social media, or even uh, paid acquisition campaigns. So you kind of want to figure out what those channels are, something that's going to be affordable, effective, and scalable. And then uh, as a last step, you can start building out an early access list. And you can use that as a, a list of beta testers or even interview candidates down the road. So let's talk about the first step that you should take. You've got an idea. Is this something that should be a real app? What's the first step that you would take? From my experience talking with indie mobile developers, I think 
what I see a lot is they kind of feel some kind of a pain in their personal lives. Uh, and then they go ahead and start building out a solution for it. But, you know, while that's a really valid approach, there are actually tons of, uh, you know, different app ideas that you can do for segments of society that you may not know super well, right? So a big part of it is kind of understanding what your goals are, uh, whether you want to build a business around it or it's more just to scratch a personal itch. Because if your goal is to build a business around it, then it would actually be really valuable to kind of say like, well, you know, what are some of the underserved segments of society that also have the ability to pay for an app, you know? So, you know, you can think about maybe it's accountants or financial professionals or, you know, there are really a number of people out there that you could start uh, doing research with and, and kind of talk, start talking to them about what kind of problems that they have in their daily lives. So in that regard, would you sort of recommend trying to identify a smaller subset of a segment? A lot of times I'll hear ideas and they're really targeting. It sounds like a too large of a group of people. I mean, not as bad as like all iPhone users or all people who use Facebook or something like that. But even when you get a little bit more ingrained, say maybe I wanted to target accountants, there might be a subset there of accounts that your solution would really solve a problem for because they may, the majority may be happy with an existing software offering. How do you kind of work through that to identify, like, do you have a, a significant enough segment, enough differentiation at that first step? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, the more niche you can get, actually, the better. Uh, it's a lot better to start out super niche and build out a core group of users and sort of grow out from that as opposed to, uh, you know, a lot of the approaches that I see is kind of just go super broad off the top. And, and over time, you kind of the business owner are forced to narrow down their business approach because they're not finding uh, the users that they need. Uh, so, you know, with the accountants, for example, uh, one way you can kind of look at it is, well, yes, there are accountants, but uh, you know, there are accountants that serve small business owners, there are personal accountants, there are accountants that serve uh, larger enterprises. So uh, being able to segment out a few of those sub-segments and actually talking to each one of them and understanding like, well, like what kind of problems do you have in your daily lives? Uh, it really helps you to kind of focus on because over time you will be kind of connecting with a specific subgroup most likely and you know that can kind of show you the way to your next steps so do you recommend just picking a handful of industries and start talking to people in each industry and seeing if they have problems yeah i mean there are really quite a few approaches and a lot of tools online you can use for this so a big part of it is also understanding that the market that you pick is going to be big enough to sustain you financially so for example if you set out a goal of you know, I want to make, let's say, $70,000 a year off the app, right? And maybe you charge like a dollar for the app. So that that's approximately like $70,000 that you need to be maintaining every single year. So a way to kind of figure out if the market's big enough for that, you know, you can use uh, Google's search trend on the specific problem that you're wanting to solve. And then even with Google's AdWords tool, there's like a keyword research tool that you can actually see how competitive certain keywords are, you know, how many people are searching for it. And, you know, even on social media, you can go on Twitter and identifying like a specific group of hashtags, you can kind of look into and see 
like at any given moment, how many people are actually talking about this? Uh, are, is there a lot of sort of like simultaneous calls for a solution for the specific problem that you're solving for? And then the last one being like Reddit's, right? Like there are a lot of subreddits uh, that focus on very specific problems that you can kind of and uh, like just kind of get in there and understanding like what are these people talking about on day to day? Like is the problem that you're wanting to solve, does that surface up to the conversations like very frequently, right? So all of those things kind of combine to give you a signal for like, wow, like this is something that I could build an app around versus like maybe I should keep searching. So once you've identified you know, an industry that has a problem, let's say, accountants want to complain about their clients in a, in a private thing. I don't know. Whatever. Actually, let's pick something that might be a little more useful, something that saves accounting's time, specifically tailored to the accounting field, helps them keep track of to do whatever. Uh, what's the next step? If we've kind of identified that this market may, there's a problem here. What's the next step from, from that? Yeah. So once you kind of uh, picked a very niche group of people, you can actually start talking to them. You know, my typical approach is to just start reaching out to people that I know uh, and ask them like, hey, do you know any accountants? So let's say it's accountants that serve small businesses, right? It's just kind of figuring out like, do you know any accountants that serve small businesses right now? And really all you need is one person to start because after you build a relationship with that person, you can start asking like, hey, do you have any any colleagues that I can talk to? anybody that you went to school with, right? Like, where do you usually hang out? And that's kind of a huge entry point into that whole community uh, because most likely that person already is part of those communities. So that's purely off of face-to-face. But then there are actually a lot of other things you can do, right? So you can start having a landing page up on the web and actually try to address your audience very specifically with your copy. And then you can even do uh, landing page experiments with in terms of A-B testing using things like Optimizely to, you know, to like state different problems as your headline, you know, whatnot, and use that kind of thing and, and drive traffic to your page and seeing like how do people interact with your page. A lot of them just leaving right away. Or are they actually signing up for your early access list, which is kind of a proxy for, oh, yeah, like, this is something that people are interested in. Okay, so once they've signed up for the early access list, they've indicated that they're serious about this, learning more about this whenever the solution comes, even though you haven't written a line of code yet. You're just trying to figure out what's, what people are willing to sign their name up for. Exactly, yeah. Yeah, because so, it's very possible that you would have like up to you know anywhere between like one to five like really painful problems that you've identified you know you could even have a landing page for each one of these problems and see you know how people convert across the board yeah one thing that i can see here though is so you're talking about let's say for you know you said small business accounting and let's say that they have a collections problem right so their clients don't always pay them or don't always pay them on time and you've got this app that is going to help them out some way whether it it sets up a routine or it sets up some way of managing that or, you know, even connects to a backend that sends out emails. I mean, who knows, right? Mm-hmm. And, and you know, you have people signing up like, yeah, this is a pro. Oh, if you could solve this for me. Oh, my gosh. You know, because it's totally we're talking money here. So there's, you know, if, if it's a problem for them, it's a high number dollar problem for them. So they're totally willing to pay for the solution. So at that point, then, how do you actually 
formulate a solution that you know will work for them in the way that they want it to. For example, you, you've got a problem, but you don't actually have a solution for it yet. So how do you put something in front of them to say, yes, this is the solution we want? Because yeah. I've seen people, they're like, oh, yeah, you know, I've talked to 20 million plumbers, and it turns out that connecting up this one thing is is a real pain for them. And so if I had an app that showed them how to do it and got them around all the gotchas, you know, even if it was just a checklist, you know, it would solve all these problems. But they don't want a checklist. They just want something where they can kind of take a picture of it and uh, it solves the insurance claims against their work or something. And so you may be solving the wrong problem, but they're never going to use your solution. Or you may be solving the right problem, but they're never going to use your solution because it doesn't actually solve it in a way that makes sense to them or that they're going to want to use. Absolutely. Uh, yeah, that's a really good point. And I think the best way to kind of avoid those kind of pitfalls is to just figure out how are they currently solving those problems? Mm -hmm. uh, because if it's a painful problem, like they have to be solving it already in some way, somehow. And, you know, the kind of the ideal kind of uh, landscape that you want to be looking at is like, you know, they hack together like four different tools, you right. know, maybe they're using like, email and calendar and Google Docs and Trello and Skype, you know, like four different things to like solve this problem. Mm -hmm. Or they may be using a product already, which is actually completely fine. You know, and that's probably going to be the more common scenario that you're going to run into. But, you know, really talking to them, you know, a huge part of being successful really is about gaining empathy for the people that are going to be paying you. So really talking to them about like, well, like, what do you like and dislike about the product? Like, how would you improve it? Right. So that should generate enough ideas for you to start brainstorming at least, you know, anywhere between three to five different variations of quote unquote, a solution, which you can then take to the lab and use things like balsamic or sketch to have some ideas out. And then you can start showing them showing them sort of like, well, you know, what do you think about this solution and, and, and sort of getting feedback from them. So at that stage, when you sort of started to get that type of data, I've run into this before, I actually tried to do a, a product for attorneys. And I, what I found was that their existing solutions were low tech or no tech. So the difficulty I had was it was getting them to think in a different way about even solving that pain point because they had gotten accustomed to solving it, it was painful and it required paperwork and phone calls. But getting them to use an app was going to be something drastically different. And there was a huge hurdle. Is that a time when maybe I should just bail or are there things that I can do to sort of educate the consumer and get them comfortable with a, 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 a more technical solution? Yeah, fantastic question, Alondo. I think as developers, we kind of uh, want to look at the world through the lens of like everything can be an app and like a lot of problems can be solved with an app. But, you know, the kind of the reality of the fact is that not all problems should be solved with an app, you know, and coming to that realization can be difficult sometimes, especially if you're a maker. But, you know, like a lot of people are just not like they're just not technologically savvy or they're not interested in using their iPhones to solve this problem, which is actually completely fine. But, you know, you want to be understanding that really well. And just understand also the challenge of if you did want to solve that problem still with an app, 
uh, a huge hurdle is going to be educating your users and helping them with understanding, you know, the effectiveness of using a phone for it, stuff like that, which is like a lot of work as well. So, you know, if you kind of encounter that, it might, you know, and you don't have the resources to educate your users and things of that nature. Yeah, it might be a good idea to move on to another group of people who are already using their phones to solve some of their problems. So getting into the, 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 the stage of having some people who are maybe acclimated with technology and, and moving towards the prototype solutions, you mentioned a couple of tools. Um, I just wanted to, if you could go through some of those to, you know, easier prototypes to sort of save time and get feedback. Cause that feedback loop is something I think would really be helpful to, to resist the urge to jump into Xcode and try to put together something, <laughs> save a little bit of time that way. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, it really depends on, you know, what you're comfortable with. You know, uh, my kind of tool of choice is Sketch, which is basically like a Photoshop competitor. And it's pretty intuitive tool for anywhere between like beginner designers to experienced designers. And there are just tons of components out there. You can hack together like a number of screens really, really fast. But, you know, I understand that not everybody's going to be, are going to be like familiar with this tool. So, but then the thing is, pen and paper are always going to be like the easiest and, and like everybody has access to it. So in terms of prototyping, like if you have a pen and paper, like that's really all you need to start at least drawing out some solutions and, and seeing what people think. And also, you know, like I know that a number of designers actually use Xcode directly to prototype solutions as well. So I think it really depends on what you're comfortable with. So we've got a number, number of different approaches for creating a prototype. And by prototype, we're not talking about an MVP or anything that's really useful. It's just either a mock-up or an actual app you know, built with Xcode. You know, that's basically smoke and mirrors. But what do you do with this? Are you getting in front of people and talking to them? Yeah. Walking, yeah. walking through the problem? For sure. Yeah. So hopefully, um, you know, through your prior efforts, you would already have a group of people that you've talked to and you've try to build a relationship with, and even better, you might have like an early access list. You know, let's say you have a hundred emails. So all of these people are going to be people that you should be tapping into and talking to, to show what your prototype is. And a lot of what you want to be asking in this stage is, well, like, what do you think about this product, right? Like, do you think this actually solves your problem? And I would probably shy away from asking them about like the specific UI design of the app, right? So let's not worry about if you like the color scheme or not or the way that the buttons work, but it's more about, you know, like let's just say if all of that can be changed later, right? Like does this actually solve your problem? And a lot of the times, if it does, like you would see their eyes light up and they would get excited about it and they would be excited to like beta test it early on and things of that nature. And there are actually a lot of tools out there uh, that can help you facilitate this process. So for example, yeah, for Core 15, we used Marvel, which is basically a way you can have like a clickable prototype uh, sent to people's phones. And then uh, that connects to another product called things called look back or something like that, where it actually records the user's face and what they're saying and how they're interacting with the app as they're going through the prototype. You know, so if you're interacting with somebody who is uh, on the other side of the country or whatnot, 
you could still actually get a lot of this kind of uh, feedback with technology, essentially. Yeah, yeah. the other thing about prototyping is that, you know, if you're a web developer, there are actually, you know, it's really easy to throw up a Rails app that's mobile optimized mm-hmm. as well. So, for example, if you're just like really well versed in Rails, you can throw up the same solution with Rails in like 10% of the time, then that actually wouldn't hurt. You know, that might take you shorter to do that than to like hack together like a sketch, uh, mm-hmm. Marvel prototype. And you can use things like Ionic and whatnot to actually get pretty close to what the end product would look like. Yeah, in fact, uh, Ionic also has kind of an interface builder-like thing called Ionic Creator. If you're familiar with the way that HTML and CSS work and the way that Ionic kind of deals with these interfaces, uh, or or even if you're not, but you're semi-familiar with Angular and with web technologies, this is a really quick way to get something together that looks good. Yep. The other thing is, is that tweaking CSS in a lot of cases, for me at least, is a lot easier than trying to figure out how to tweak around some iOS interface that is almost what I want. Yeah, absolutely. Because I'm more familiar with the web tech. The other thing for me is that um, I found that building out a prototype, a functional prototype, or even a working prototype with the web technologies, because I'm so much more familiar with them, in a lot of cases, I can get there much more quickly than I can with the iOS, like the native stuff that comes in Xcode. And then once I have something that I can put out there that people can fiddle with, that I can, you know, have them put up on their phone. And Ionic also has a distribution method. So you can actually create an Ionic app and send people invites to it. And then they just install the Ionic, I forget what it's called, but they have their own kind of sandbox app on the phone and it'll download your app and then they can play with it there. So there are all kinds of ways that once you're kind of past the stage of I'm going to draw a picture or, you know, I'm going to have something that you can tap that takes you from screen to screen but doesn't do anything else, you you can put all of that together and then just have somebody download an app and they can get the updates to your thing without actually having to go through approval on the App Store. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And what you might find at this stage might just be like, people are ready to pay you, like, Mm -hmm. you know, Mm -hmm. so that would be really, really ideal. You might actually come to a conclusion that like, it doesn't need to even be an iOS app after all, right? Yeah, it could be purely web based, uh, which in terms of distribution, and, uh, you know, sort of like, delivery speed, uh, you know, it's a lot faster. Well, the other thing is, is you can also get the feedback if it's not any of those things. So you can get the feedback on, yeah, it feels a little bit off, you know, and you can go, okay, well, maybe I do need to build it in Swift. Or you may find this is terrific, but where do I do this? Or where do I do this other thing? Or I like the way it does this, but it doesn't really help me with this. And then you start getting the real feedback. I found that people are really good at feedback once they see something that they don't want. (laughs) Does that make sense? That yeah, should be that's... easy to provide. So my clients, for example, uh, they'll be like, you know, I really want this online social network that does all these things, right? And so I build them to spec what they asked for, and they get in and they say, oh, no, 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 this isn't what we wanted. We wanted this other thing, which also kind of meets the spec, but it turns out that they couldn't articulate the difference between what you understood and what they were saying until you put something in front of them, and they could say, oh, no, actually, this is really critical that we have this other thing. Yeah, that's actually a 
really cool point because uh, I used to do consulting as well. I still kind of do uh, like part-time consulting from time to time. And, you know, when you're dealing with clients, a lot of the times, you know, especially with clients that are not super technologically savvy, you know, they might, they may start making feedback, you know, comments like that, like, oh, I don't know about this button or I don't know about this value prop. But if it's something that you can bring to them and being like, well, I talked to like 20 of your potential customers, I showed them the solution. Uh, with the prototype, you know, I was able to build like an early launch list of like 150, right? Like all of these people are ready to beta test and they all kind of understand their business problems really, really well and, and they're ready to pay you. Then the clients wouldn't, like a lot of the times the clients would just, you know, they would understand the business implications of uh, what you've created for them. So I think for a lot of indie mobile developers who are doing contracting or consulting, you know, it's actually a service that they can offer to their clients. So I want to step back a little bit and talk about the value proposition. You mentioned that you would you know, give the prototype to the user and say, you know, does this solve your problem? And they say yes, and then you give it the green light. But there's two other things that I would be concerned about, even though like, you talk to someone and say, hey, would you, is this, is this solve your problem? They'll be like, yeah, because they're, they're being polite. Um, it doesn't really get to the point of, you know, would they actually use this app and would they actually pay for it? Yeah. How do you, how do you get that information? Yeah, for sure. Uh, great question. So in terms of te- testing the value prop, uh, you know, there are a couple ways. So the main one, as I mentioned before, is going to be having like a really solid landing page that's going to be really well edited. Uh, and you know that it's, you know, like it's going straight for the problem and speaking straight to the audience that you're shooting for. And the way that should show you is, you know, looking at Google Analytics, like you should see like at least a percentage of all people that go to the page bounce right away because they understand that they're not that user, right? Uh, for the other you know, 10%, 20%, what have you, uh, they should be reading through a lot of this stuff. And then you want to be shooting for some kind of a signal, right? So a lot of times it really depends on how ballsy you are. You know, I tend to just kind of have a sign up box in the end. And I use that as a proxy for, okay, like, do people actually, are, are they actually interested? But, you know, it's very common as well that people just ask for like a financial commitment up front, right? So let's say if you pay for six months now, you would have access to the beta of the app for up to three months and like really supreme support from the team and, you know, and, and have six months of this at a discounted price. Even though you may be losing money on that, you know that this is going to be some, somebody who's like ready to pay you right here, right now, even when you like don't have a product whatsoever. So that's one approach. And the, the other one that sort of complement this is using like a paid advertising campaign. So typically I use Facebook for it. And with Facebook, you know, you can have different ad groups. And the way that we validated Core 15 was that, you know, we actually try to shoot for different subgroups of people. So we looked at like new mothers, you know, and like teenagers who are ready to go on spring break you know, veterans who just returned from the war. And we actually spoke out to those subgroups uh, specifically in our ad copy and also the assets, the image assets. 
And then the way that we kind of measure against how effective it is, is we actually look at cost per conversion, right? A conversion in our case was sign up for early access or sign up to be part of our beta. And just kind of understanding what that like dollar amount is. And that should give you a proxy for how much you might have to spend to acquire a download down the road, you know, when you're actually trying to make money with your app. So you mentioned actually setting up a credit card payment and actually taking money for something that you haven't actually written a line of code for yet. So if this turns out not to be something viable, something that you don't build, do you just take off and fly to South America? <laughs> what happened? What do you do then? Yeah, there are a couple of things. You know,、uh, you could either take off to South America, or you can refund it. You know, you can refund the money and and maybe just like restart the whole process. But I actually think the probably what I would do is to reach out to those people and working with them to find a, an alternative solution、uh, where they would actually feel comfortable with. Not getting the money back, but getting like a modified version of whatever your product is, because maybe like whatever the reason your initial offering didn't work for them, you can actually work very closely with them because they're already your paying customer, right? They already paid you; they are your customer. So obviously, if they want their money back, there's nothing you can do. But I think more often than not, you would actually find people who are like, "Well, you know, actually, don't worry about the money. Like, listen to me talk about this other problem that I've been having." I、uh, just want to issue a disclaimer: I will be in South America for much of next year. I am not leaving with people's money. Alondo, <laughs> 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 you know. I'm coming to visit you. <laughs> no kidding. That's good to know. There's a marketing aspect to this, I guess, even ongoing past that initial group of users. We talked about Facebook ads. Are there some additional channels that、uh, we should be aware of that we can use to sort of get the press out? I mean, I know depending on the app store is a huge, huge mistake, but not really sure what the other avenues are to sort of like let people know that a solution exists for a problem that they're having. Yeah, absolutely.、Um, so. That actually kind of、uh, goes into my next、uh, point, which is validating your marketing channels. So the book that I would recommend everybody to read is called Traction, and you can find that on tractionbook.com. And basically, the I, the overall idea is that you want to be able to have like pre-validated marketing channels ready to go. Right when you launch, right, and some of these there are actually quite a bit of channels out there, and I think you know a lot of times it's not super obvious. So aside from things like Facebook, you know there are other paid acquisition channels like YouTube.、Uh, YouTube is actually great because this is, it's the second largest search network on the internet, but、uh, like the clicks and the views of your videos are actually quite a bit cheaper compared to AdWords. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, there's Twitter, Instagram. You can even advertise now, and Pinterest is about to like allow everybody to advertise on their platform. So, but that's purely just like paid campaigns.、Uh, then there's also social media. So, you know, especially building a community around a specific social media network. So for Core Fifteen, we try to build it out for Instagram and Pinterest because that's where we saw a lot of the potential users are hanging out at. And then just kind of continuously engage with them with valuable content. And once you're ready to sell, you can sell to them. And then there's also email marketing, right? So we talked about building an early list 
But just because they're on your MailChimp list or whatever, like you should do something with that, right? So you should, I think a lot of people just kind of leave it alone and be like, okay, I'll wait until I have like a beta solution and then I'll blast everybody with the invite or whatever. But you can actually start engaging with them, right? Start creating content that are relevant to what they do, what they care about and, and have kind of an email marketing strategy to build trust with them. So once you're ready to sell, you know, then there's other things like uh, SEO, right? So when people type into Google, like, like personal accounting calendar app, right? If your SEO game is really strong, uh, you could be one of the top results and, and tons of people would find you that way. So the whole point of like kind of validating your marketing channel is, is you really want to just be hypothesizing like what would work for your app, maybe come up with three to five channels and start trying them out and be like, well, like, you know, I'm trying this Instagram thing, but I just don't get it, you know, and like, I'm not getting a lot of success from it. That's okay. You can back out of it, like sooner rather than later. And and be like, well, with Facebook ads, you know, even though I have to spend money, but I'm able to get like 50 cents every sign up, right? And my app is going to cost $5, right? This is going to be a really sort of scalable and, and sustainable marketing channel for me. So then you kind of keep that in your back pocket. And when you launch, you know that you can spend 50 cents to get a download uh, and make, you know, $4.50 on it. And you can just kind of keep doing that till, <laughs> you know, till the end of time, right? So that, that brings up a good question in trying to determine if what value you're getting for the marketing dollar and that's setting the price. At which of these stages have we determined what people are willing to pay and how do you get them to answer that question honestly? <laughs> yeah, pricing is a huge issue for sure. And there are tons of different approaches. And, you know, it's honestly something that I'm still trying to figure out. So primarily, what I kind of go after is look at what my competitors are charging at the moment, you know, because if your product and then kind of like look at what your product is offering and how, how like significant of a benefit you're offering in addition to what your competitors are offering. But if it's a similar product, you know, you could basically copy their pricing. But, you know, you could also be talking to your customers and be like, hey, you know, I'm thinking about charging and you can go high off the top because this is just one person you're talking to. Just be like, hey, you know, I'm thinking about charging. I don't know if like all your competitors are charging $5. You're like, you want to charge $20. Like that's a goal that you can shoot for and be like, hey, if this app is $20, like what value do I need to provide for you in order for you to want to pay me $20 for this app? And, you know, like $20 is like not that much money for somebody who like can afford an iPhone and can afford to buy apps. Uh, so a lot of the times it's, it's about like figuring out what that $20 solution would be. And what that also allows you to do is you can focus on like an even more niche segment who has the money to solve this problem. And then that means less support for you. There's a less number of customers that you need to reach out to. It's much easier for you to actually find out where they hang out because they probably all hang out in the same places. Okay. Yeah. I was just curious about that because it's just like this race to the bottom. A lot of times I look in certain segments where I have ideas for, and a lot of the offerings are free. Mm-hmm. And so the challenge is, okay, I don't want to release a free app. <laughs> what, are my, yeah. what are my options there? <laughs> yeah. I hate making money. yeah i mean it's definitely a a very tricky topic but you know there are like a number of ways 
to sort of figure this out. Um, you know, the other way, for example, is uh, if on your landing page, you're asking people to make an upfront commitment, right? You can actually say like, well, like I'm, it never hurts to start off in a high number because you can always go down. But if you start off low, it's going to be really, really difficult to go up later on. So, you know, a lot of it's about like for your landing page experiment, for example, if you're making somebody to make a six month commitment financially, you can tell them how much you're planning on selling this for and just make sure that they know, well, this is going to be a discounted rate because you're here early. But after the six months, like, you know, this may be like a different number that's higher than what it is now. So, I mean, the next point that I had on my note was, we kind of touched on this a lot already, uh, which is like building an early access list and use it as a, uh, like as a beta list and interview candidates. Yeah. Some of those candidates, I guess these are coming from the initial group of people that you've been getting feedback from. I mean, they don't really, are they considered beta testers or are just people that are interested who maybe gone through the prototypes? Yeah, I mean, I would say it should be both. You know, um, it's anybody that you ever engage with who would find the solution useful because, you know, once your beta product is out, you know, like at this point, you may have already uh, did like quite a bit of programming. So you want to be, you want to make sure that like people are going to be using this app and they're actually uh, retained as an active user. So, a big way that I make sure the app is going to be worth building is basically implementing analytics tools into the beta product early and instrumenting them well. So using things like mixed panel, right, crash analytics, answers and things like that, you can actually see like how many people are using the app. And you have a defined number on your list, right? So let's say you're able to collect 200 beta testers, right? And you can see how many active unique users there are on a week-to-week basis. And a lot of these tools also provide things like retention graphs. So you can see kind of like when people sign up for your app on day one, like how often did they come back to the app after the first week, second week, third week, or even first month, second month. And, you know, a lot of the times the number may not be good off the top and that's okay, right? And that's the whole point of beta testing. So then you kind of want to go back to these people and be like, well, you know, I, I saw that you used the app for 20 minutes right after you downloaded it, but you never used it again. Like why, right? And that's going to help you uncover a ton of usability issues uh, or maybe they don't know how to use it or... You know, it maybe it's lacking certain integrations with services that they already. And a lot of these things you're going to be able to uncover by having really good analytics in your app and having a direct channel of communication to your users with the app. So, uh, like for example, one tool, uh, one type of tools that are getting really popular now are these kind of direct communication tools, which basically like would pop up a chat box inside of your app where people can just start like messaging messaging you directly so you know use tools like that to talk to people directly and figuring out like why they're not using the app or why they are right like what do they love about it and you can kind of amplify those features so uh, i just kind of want to do a quick review before we go to picks or anything else and that is what are kind of the steps that people should follow then to validate their idea for an app 
Yeah, so on a high level, uh, the big steps are you first want to identify a customer segment that uh, you want to build an app for. And that segment ideally should be small, it should be niche, and it should be a segment that has money to spend on an app. And then you want to be finding a painful or itchy problem for those people. And painful would be something that they're ready to spend money for right away. Itchy might be something that has to be more habitual for the user. So to learn more about that, you can read uh, this book called Hooked, uh, where they talk a lot about that. And then you want to be validating that pain or itch and and the fact that it's actually real. And you want to be doing that through face-to-face interviews, landing page experiments, uh, and paid ads experiments and things of that nature. And you want to be figuring out how they're currently solving this problem with existing solutions and products and what they like or dislike about those solutions. And hopefully at that point, you're ready to start prototyping out some solutions, you know, whether that's pen and paper or sketch or Xcode and have a few variations of the, of the, of your idea that you can show to your users and get feedback on that. And uh, at this point, before start coding, you want to be validating your marketing channels, right? How will people, how will you get people through the door, right? How are they going to find your app? And these channels should be effective, affordable, and scalable. Uh, so that when you launch, you can use them right away to get downloads. Uh, and you also want to be building an early access list, which you can use as beta list, as interview candidates, and even for launching, right? So they can be your uh, early adopters and supporters. That's kind of uh, the major steps that uh, one should be taking to, before they uh, build the app. All right. And then how do you validate that you're on the right track once you have your app or once you start building your app? To figure out that you're on the right track, you know, at this point, whoever you've been talking to, whoever is on your early access list, uh, they should be getting really excited for this. Uh, they should be telling their colleagues or people in, in their professional network about it. And they should be getting excited to give you feedback when you solicit the feedback. A lot of the times they will be giving you unsolicited feedback as well. And in your beta testing stage, you know, using your analytics tools, you should be seeing the app as sticky, right? So, you know, they should be coming back on a set interval, right? So for Instagram, that might be multiple times a day. For a podcasting app, that might be once a day, right? For an email client, that might be once or multiple times a day. But then for other apps, it may be once a week or even once a month. But that's okay, right? As long as it's fitting the use case and they're actually coming back, uh, then you have something going on. I think the biggest fear is people download it and then they use it for 10 minutes and then they never ever touch it again. So if you see that kind of stuff, uh, you should really be going back to these users and, and figuring out why that is. All right, let's go ahead and get to the picks. Alondo, do you want to go first? Sure. Okay, so I actually have just started playing around with Sketch um, myself, and um, I came across a nice tool that uh, plugin manager for Sketch called Sketch Toolbox, and um, was able to use it and get started um, this past weekend. So I, it's pretty handy in, in locating plugins that I can add to solve some problems. The first of which was um, actually duplicating the work that I was doing onto the different sizes for icons. I'm working on app icon, so that's really really handy. 
And then the second pick that I have is I've been told that I've been doing coffee wrong. So I picked up a, a clever coffee dripper, um, which is uh, I've been told that this is a, the, a better technique for making my coffee. Um, it makes uh, 18 ounces and uh, I, I should be able to get uh, better tasting coffee on a daily basis. And it will be here tomorrow. So I'm excited about it. And those are my picks. Awesome. Jane, what about you? So I've got one pick today. And, you know, with the iFreaks, Ruby Rogues, Adventures in Angular, I mean, you can only listen to Chuck like eight to nine hours a week, which Ugh, is a problem. I know, right? You know, uh, it's fine. You want more, but you can only listen so much on one, you know, eight to nine hours in a week. And that's like one day. So what do you do the other six days? So if you're into podcasts and if you're listening to me talk right now, I think you are into podcasts. I was just introduced to one called You Must Remember This, which talks about kind of the first century of Hollywood. And one particular series they did on the Charles Manson and the Manson murders was really interesting. Not the most lighthearted subject, but you can actually skip most of the, the brutal stuff, even though they actually give you a little warning. You turn off, you can turn off that episode and actually go over the main killings. But, you know, Charles Manson was hanging around in LA and trying to be famous and hobnobbing with whoever the, the tastemakers are, you know, movie producers, record producers. And so he interacted with a lot of people and the story is pretty interesting and very engrossing. It, it's like 12 episodes, which is probably 10 hours of listening, but that'll take you through day two of a podcast without, you know, doing that. So yeah, check out, you must remember this podcast and they've, they've got probably 45, 40 or so episodes. Pretty interesting stuff. Well done. All right. Uh, I've got a couple of picks. Now, if you do listen to all of the other shows, you're going to hear this on the other shows. But it's so cool. And I'm so excited about it. So I have to share it everywhere. There is a free online genealogical database you can hit. It's called Family Search. You can go to familysearch.org. It is run by the Mormon Church. But uh, the tool is great for tracking down your ancestors. And it has bunches of stories and other things in there, too. So it's it's more focused around, I would say, family history than actual genealogy, though it does that too. But there is a group at Brigham Young University that built an app around this. And what it does is it actually tells you how you're related to people. It's called Relative Finder. And uh, you can get to it at relativefinder.org. So <laughs> I'm just going to go ahead and look at some of this stuff and just read some of the names these are people that I'm related to. Incidentally, I have two direct ancestors that are listed in here. One of them is Elizabeth Jackson, who was actually tried for witchcraft and executed as a witch during the Salem witch trial. She's my 10th great grandmother. My 12th great grandfather, Richard Warren, came over on the Mayflower. And then I'm related to a whole bunch of other people like Thomas Jefferson, uh, Miles Standish, who was the, he was the military commander on the Mayflower and Plymouth Colony. A whole bunch of Declaration of Independence signers, if you're in the U.S., uh, Calvin Coolidge, President of the United States. I'm related to a whole bunch of Presidents of the United States as well. A few other people that I'm related to that you can kind of draw some uh, connections to, uh, Elvis Presley. Elvis and I are eighth cousins, one time removed. Barack Obama, incidentally, and I are 13th cousins, one time removed, so we're a little less closely related. George Washington, fourth cousin, 10 times removed. That's because he died a long time ago. But this is it's just really, really fun. Uh, Henry David Thoreau, sixth cousin, six times removed. Anyway, it's 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 really kind of fun. Louis L'Amour, Philo T. Farnsworth, who, who invented the TV, uh, Samuel Clemens, Mark Twain. 
John Adams. I mean, all kinds of people. John Hancock. It's really fun to go and look through this. So if you're curious and you want to see who a famous or historical figures you're related to, uh, definitely go check out Relative Finder. You do have to have an account on FamilySearch.org, and you have to have your generations linked in to the the rest of the genealogical information. But it's way fun. I also created a group called DevChat, and the password is DevChat, all lowercase. And what it does is if you're in a group with somebody, it will show you how you're related to them. So if you want to find out how you're related to me and to other listeners of the shows, uh, then go ahead and go to relativefinder.org and join the dev chat group. And that will show you how you're related to all the rest of us. But anyway, it's just been really fun to play with. So Charles, I yeah. am your father. <laughs> <laughs> wow. I'm going to have to talk to my mother, but yeah, so those are my picks. One other thing I want to throw out there though, is that, I got my wife into this, and uh, we're actually 13th cousins once removed, too. So I'm as closely related to her as I am to Barack Obama. All right, Faye, what are your picks? Wow, that was amazing. You may be the most presidential person I've ever talked to. <laughs> I, I think you'd be surprised. Uh, yeah. Unless your family has recently immigrated. And on my mom's side, they did. But on my dad's side, they didn't. They've been here since the Mayflower. You, I think you'll be surprised at how many of them you're related to. Nice. Cool. So for my picks, uh, I'm also a big podcasting fan and a, uh, a fan of the New Yorker magazine. So the New Yorker magazine actually uh, started putting out a podcast. It's only on episode three right now, but it's the same quality of content, right? Storytelling, opinion pieces. And then they even found a way to put the cartoon section in there, which is really, really cool. And then the other thing is, you know, I just got an iPhone 6S and I've been searching into uh, like Adblock apps and I found Adblock Fast, which is a free app and it's also open source uh, and it's it's been working really well so far. And then uh, if you're interested in any of the stuff that I talked about, I actually have uh, a lot more content around this uh, and I actually have a, a six part email course. So uh, you can find everything that we talked about today on secretsaucehq.com slash ifreaks. All right. Very cool. Well, I don't think there's anything else we should uh, do before we wrap up other than ask you, Faye. You, you kind of gave us an idea, but on Twitter and stuff, how do, how do people follow you? Yeah. So out on Twitter, I'm at FeiFanW. That's F-E-I-F-A-N-W. And then uh, if you want to send me an email directly, you can email me at Faye at secretsaucehq.com. So that's F-E-I at secretsaucehq.com. Very cool. We'll go ahead and wrap up this show. Thanks for coming, Faye, and we'll catch everyone next week. Hosting and bandwidth provided by the Blue Box Group. Check them out at bluebox.net. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y.com to learn more. Would you like to join a conversation with the iFreaks and their guests? Want to support the show? We have a form that allows you to join the conversation and support the show at the same time. You can sign up at ifreakshow.com slash form. 